Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Friday, February the 19th, 2021. On this edition of The Politocrat, a bit of this and a bit of that. A number of things to explore on this Friday episode. Ted Cruz is the very least of it. All of that, well, all of the above, (laughs) one of the above and more coming up next. Welcome back. So it has been a week indeed as we make it to this Friday. I hope you are well and I hope you are healthy to the extent that health allows. And I hope that that is a really good, abundant allowance as we move through February, we are almost at the end of February, just one more week, I guess, of February and change before we turn the calendar to the final month of the first quarter of 2021. That is absolutely staggering. Absolutely staggering that we are almost at the final month of the first quarter of the year already. That's That's just beyond control as far as I'm concerned. How time just moves by like this. I'm going to talk a little bit about time and about value and worth coming up later on. But first, I want to start with some of the things we have been seeing in the news or you may have been seeing in the news here in the United States on the political realm, in the realm of politics. One of them, of course, is what's going on in Texas with the power outages and the deep freeze and the climate change, or I should say global warming as well, um, that has brought on all these events. And no, it doesn't have to be boiling hot in Texas for people to say global warming. That's exactly what this is, how the climate changes as well and how... Um, in Texas right now, it's just pure agony for the people there. Deep, deep freezes in a place where the temperature at this time of year would probably be in the 70s or 80s, even in this time of year. And so the winter of Texas has truly become the nightmare of Texas. And then when you've got hundreds and thousands, if not God knows how many more, even millions of homes without power, and I know the power is being restored to millions of homes. You've got mayors who are callous down there, who don't give too much of a rat's you-know-what when it comes to the people of Texas and their well-being, comfort, and safety. And, you know, these are Republican politicians who just do not care. They are straight-out sociopaths. And they are exercising the maximum contempt for those they are supposed to be 
actually serving. But they are serving themselves because these kinds of politicians are very selfish and are very greedy. And one of them is Ted Cruz, the senator out of the state of Texas. Ted Cruz, the United States senator, is a rather loathsome figure. He really is. And people have already forgotten that he was one of the traitors who called for the election results to be scrapped from last November. He challenged the election results. People forget this. And I believe he challenged them in Arizona while he was on the Senate floor, or he was going to. We know about Josh Hawley, and we know that Josh Hawley should not be anywhere near the Senate, nor should Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, of course, voted to acquit for the second trial in a row, Donald Trump. And he, after having, you know, his wife was in a position, her name is Heidi Cruz. Heidi Cruz in a position where Donald Trump was taking pot shots at her and demeaning her publicly. And people remember this from 2016 and Ted Cruz got in the camera, pointed, staggered over a couple of his words and said, Donald, knock it off. You know, and then just like that, when Donald Trump got into the White House, Ted Cruz became the most compliant, butt-kissing figure in politics. And it was ugly. It was as bad, if not actually worse, than Lindsey Graham kissing up to Donald Trump after 2016's election. We remember that very well. Lindsey Graham, who outwardly said that Trump was a racist, a bigot, a homophobe, all these things. And then when Donald Trump walks into the White House, oh, he's my new best friend, you know. People look to tell you about your best. You know, I don't even know that. You know how the song goes. And that's how Lindsey Graham behaved. Ted Cruz behaved in a despicable way, if not more so a despicable way, because of Heidi Cruz being attacked like this publicly. Humiliated like this publicly. And it brings me back to a film that I talk about here, I've mentioned a number of times on social media, at the popcorn, R-E-E-L on Twitter. Brings me back to the film The Incident, the 1967 film. You have to watch that film to understand why I bring it up here. Because I'm not going to give anything away. It's not really much to give away or anything to give away. But that is really um, where Ted Cruz finds himself. And now he has, or he did, flee the state of Texas. The people that he serves in the entire state on uh, behalf of, you know, he, he serves or supposedly serves, shall I say. And he fled the state to go to Cancun. He, Heidi, and whomever else. And I'm not sure whether they have children or not. But the point is, is that they fled Texas. This deep freeze, while all of the people in Texas and people in large swaths of Texas were suffering. Their U.S. senator deserted them in their hour of need. You just can't have that kind of thing. 
went off to Cancun, then came back yesterday and apologized or said, I look, I realize I made a mistake. When did you realize that you made a mistake, Ted? When you booked the tickets for the flight, when you booked the trip, when you said, come on, kids, come on, Heidi, let's go. When you got to the airport, when you checked your bags in, when you got on the plane, when you fastened your seatbelt, when you landed in Cancun, when did you realize that it was a wrong thing to do or a mistake? Is it when you were in the air looking down at the snowy climbs of the state that you supposedly represent? When did you realize? When you landed in Cancun, was that it? Was I mean, there's so many steps along the way. I mean, when the sun was hitting your face on the beaches of Cancun, Mexico, is that when you realized that it was a mistake, a bad idea, the wrong thing to do? Ted Cruz is back in Texas with, I believe, maybe Heidi Cruz is is, is there as well. Maybe she's in Cancun. Um, I don't know. I honestly have not followed this as closely as perhaps you are following it. But I can say that the suffering of the people in Texas is far more important than a trip to Cancun. And as a matter of fact, Ted Cruz should never have got on that plane. He should never have booked or whomever booked it for him, should never have booked that flight and booked that trip. Maybe that trip was arranged beforehand. Maybe it was planned beforehand, but it seems like it wasn't because Heidi Cruz had apparently been quoted somewhere in a text as saying that they wanted to get out of there. They wanted to go and escape the deep freeze in their home. I mean, that's just... What happened to we don't cut and run? What happened to all of that? You know, the blustery speeches that Ted Cruz would give you on the Senate floor. We're not cutting and running. And the Democrats are cutting and running and they're doing this and they're doing that. If you want an example of cutting and running. Oh, because a little bit of snow. Look no further than Ted Cruz. You can't, I mean, can't you just imagine the people in Chicago, the people in Minnesota? They're laughing, absolutely laughing at Ted Cruz right now. Because the winters in those places I just mentioned, in the city of Chicago, in the state of Minnesota, I mean, those winters are as brutal as any on the planet, basically. You have temperatures in Minnesota sometimes of minus 40, minus 50, maybe even worse than that, colder than that. Same thing in the state of Illinois and in Chicago, specifically the city of Chicago, where the temperatures plunge minus 30, minus 40 around this time of year. And Ted Cruz, as well as being a traitor who should not be in the Senate, is a coward, 
And I honestly believe that Ted Cruz should not be reelected in 2024. And that's where all of this comes down to you if you are in Texas. Texas voters, you now must make it clear. Ted Cruz has to go as a member of the U.S. Senate. He has not done anything for you. Name one thing that Ted Cruz has done that has benefited the state of Texas during the course of the time that he has been a United States Senator. He was elected in 2012. He served his first term. And in 2018, a narrow re-election victory over Beto O'Rourke, or Beto O'Rourke, I should say. Beto O'Rourke, the Democratic congressman at the time, narrowly lost. It was maybe a 2%, lost by two percentage points. That was in 2018. I believe that Beto O'Rourke is going to run again in Texas for the Senate seat against Ted Cruz in 2024. And I think what you're seeing Beto O'Rourke do and others are doing for people in Texas is part of that campaign. Some of us were a little disappointed at Beto O'Rourke when he declined to run against John Cornyn. And I quite frankly think the Democratic establishment said, well, we're going to let someone else run. And we know what happened in that race last November as the candidate ran and lost against John Cornyn. And I forget her last name. Her first name is MJ or, you know, her first initials, MJ. And I don't know why I can't remember her last name, but I cannot at the moment. And she was soundly defeated, soundly defeated. But there is an opportunity for Democrats in in November of 2024. And I talked about March being on the horizon here in 2021 because, you know, time flies. And believe me, the time is going to be here very soon that we will be starting 2024. Three years is going to literally go by like that. And this is where the Democrats must start to strategize right now because let me tell you, the Republicans, what's left of that party, are strategizing. And they are doing it right now for 2022. And as I've said before, the Democratic National Committee chair, the DNC chair, Jamie Harrison, fresh off of a lambasting defeat by Lindsey Graham, is going to have to start plotting here for a Democratic comeback. We need to consolidate these positions and not just be happy to win the Senate and win the House by these small margins as they are right now. But we need to consolidate and gain more on top of what we have in the Senate and the House. That's what the goal must be. And 2022 obviously is a clear goal that's right in front of us. And then 2024, Ted Cruz must be shown the door 
in 24. That is really the opportunity that Democrats have in Texas to turn that state into a state where there is at least one Democratic representative in the U.S. Senate. That has to happen. He has to be shown the door in 24. By the way, I have put out a T-shirt and it's going to be, it's available now. There's several versions of it. Very, or I should say very uh, varied colors, variations of the same theme for the shirt to get people, especially in Texas, to start to think about this. It's a T-shirt called You Cruise, You Lose, Ted. And I created and designed this T-shirt. It is available now at the Politocrat online store. The Daily Podcast online store, the web address for that is the-politocrat.myshopify.com. And it's the Cruise Lose t-shirt. It's You Cruise, You Lose, Ted. And below that on the t-shirt is the state of Texas in its map formation. You know, the state, a map of the state. And then the year below it, 2024. And... I think it's a shirt that you will like, whether you live in Texas or not. And it also frames the voters' mentality and mindset for 2024. We've got to start thinking about this now, right? This is what happens, right? Ted Cruz leaves, and he does, and it is a cruise, basically. It's Cancun, because you can crew, do crew well. I don't know, they, I doubt they do that now. But you know, there are cruises to Cancun. There were cruises to Cancun. But not any longer. Of course, because of the pandemic that's going on. It's been going on for over a year now. But that's what Ted Cruz has done. He's abandoned the people of Texas. That's what he did. And you can't let that moment go. So I've created these t-shirts. But the t-shirts are just the beginning of this. The t-shirts are to raise the awareness and the t-shirts are to get people thinking. And I hope that you take a look and you buy one of these t-shirts, send it to someone you know in Texas or wear it yourself, even better. And get the word out. We've got to get proactive and this t-shirt is one way to do it. And of course, the more important way to do it, much more important way to do it is to strategize now in the Democratic Party and people in Texas, the Texas Democrats and the youth Democrats in Texas who can strategize now so that we can have someone in the U.S. Senate who cares about the people of Texas. So that is my opening block, if you will, on matters political with Ted Cruz. And I think Ted Cruz has to be voted out. He must be voted out. This guy is a traitor. He is someone who has called for the overturning of election results. Election results that were duly certified in all 50 states. And there's no secret. He was someone who wanted this election to be overturned. And he's got to go. He's got to go from office. The problem is that we have short memories. We have very short memories. And believe me, people 
next week we'll not be talking about this Cancun trip, at least people um, outside of Texas. We'll not be talking about it anymore. They'll be, we'll all be on, quite frankly, onto something else, such as the news cycle that is really uh, ephemeral. You know, it, it lasts for a couple of seconds. And the cycle changes literally hour by hour. And people cannot forget this in Texas because Texans are the ones who will be voting him in or voting him out. But right now, for those of you in Texas and for those of you anywhere listening to this, you have to make sure that Ted Cruz does not get a third term in the United States Senate. Like the T-shirt I designed that is available for purchase right now, says, you cruise, you lose, Ted. But today, The Rock cries out to us, clearly, forcefully, come, You may stand upon my back and face your distant destiny, but seek no haven in my shadow. I will give you no hiding place down here. You, created only a little lower than the angels, have crouched too long in the bruising darkness, have lain too long face down in ignorance, your mouths spilling words armed for slaughter. The rock cries out to us today, you may stand upon me, but do not hide your face. Across the wall of the world, a river sings a beautiful song. It says, come, rest here by my side. Each of you, a bordered country, delicate and strangely made, proud, yet thrusting perpetually, under siege. Your armed struggles for profit have left collars of waste upon my shore, currents of debris upon my breast. Yet today, I call you to my riverside, if you will study war no more. Come, clad in peace, and I will sing the songs the Creator gave to me when I and the tree and the rock were one before cynicism was a bloody seer across your brow. And when you yet knew, you still knew nothing. The river sang and sings on. Who was that? Who was that? Answers on a postcard, please. Or you can email politocratpod at gmail.com Who was that voice? Who does that voice belong to? The book recommendation today on this Friday episode is a book called Slavery by another name 
The Re-Enslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II. This book was the winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the author is Douglas Blackman. Last name spelled B-L-A-C-K-M as in Mike O-N as in North. The national best-selling book, Slavery by Another Name. The winner of the Pulitzer Prize. The subtitle, The Re-Enslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II. The author's name again, Douglas Blackman. His last name, Black, and then the letters M-O-N. Highly recommended book, and I really do hope that you read that book, as well as all the other books that I recommend here on the Politocrat Daily Podcast. Welcome back. The Rolling Stones once sang, Time is on my side. And I remember the song, and I also remember it reprised in a movie called Fallen, a movie that was not particularly great back in the 1990s, around 1998, starred Denzel Washington. Actually, had a very good cast, although I don't think the movie was particularly good, but it starred Denzel Washington, who you now can see in his new movie, The Little Things, which is streaming on HBO Max and is in theaters, the hardy souls of you who choose to head back into movie theaters, which I doubt that there's very many. I doubt it. And I doubt that there's very many theaters open. But the ones that are, and there's probably a small few that are still open, would you believe? Um, that film can be found in a theater. But I think you should really watch this in the comfort of your own home. If, you have in- if you're fortunate enough to have internet access and a laptop, because there's so many people who do not. And if you have power, because so many people in Texas still do not. And in other parts of the country still do not, you can stream this particular film, The Little Things. But the movie that I referred to where this Rolling Stones song was reprised, and I'm sure it's been in other movies before 1998, was the film Fallen. As in, I've fallen and I can't get up. Fallen was a movie from 1998 star Denzel Washington, John Goodman, James Gandolfini. Quite a cast, and there are others. And it is a very interesting movie. And it did feature one or two Rolling Stone songs. Um, I, fi- I, I mean, it was not one of those movies that was a great film, but there's a cult following, I think. There's some, somewhat of a, at least I find it to be, is one of those guilty pleasures. And it is interesting. You know, there are some films that aren't good or great or especially noteworthy, but there's nuggets and little things about the film that you might find to be interesting and you watch those parts of the film and you find it to be a guilty pleasure of sorts. I think Fallen was one of those types of films, is one of those types of films. But the song that I bring up from that film is the one by the Rolling Stones, as I said, called Time Is On My Side. And time is not on anybody's side. Uh, that just be so blunt about it, but it's the truth. Time is not on anyone's side. We are borrowing time. We're living on borrowed time, as John Lennon once sang. 
And so we've got to do everything we can with every day we have. We, we do not know when our last day will be here. And then forgive me for going down this road uh, for a brief few seconds, but we have to make use of time. And how do you make use of time, I think, is the central point to ask you. How do you make use of time? How do you make use of your time on a daily basis? Whether you are working from home, whether you are not working, whether you are working outside of home, how do you make use of time on a daily basis? And what are the results of your day? How you make use of time or do not make use of time will determine whether or not and does determine typically whether or not you can look back on any given 24 hours and say, I got this done, I got that done. How do you mark your time? How do you use 24 hours of your day? Everybody uses their time differently. Everybody uses their time in ways that others of us would not do, could not do. Because of all kinds of reasons. All kinds of reasons. But no matter where we are situated, the question I have is how do you use your time? You may remember a few weeks ago, and over the last few weeks in general, I have been doing episodes geared towards the kinds of things we do daily in our lives or the kinds of things we can do to improve the results in our lives or to improve the productivity, improve the mindset, the mentality. I have been doing episodes like that over the past few weeks and it is really a hearkening back to the kinds of episodes I was doing at the beginning of this podcast from last season, season one. And at the beginning of season one, which was almost a year ago now, I did episodes like this about self-care, self-help, the things you can do in this pandemic that could try to um, help you get through some of the tougher things. And as you can see, or as you can hear, or as you may have noticed if you're someone who listens regularly, I am returning to that and I will aim to and aim to continue to do that amidst all the other things that I do cover and talk about on this podcast as well as guests. And um, that's a, something that I will continue to do. So time is really important, but I do disagree with Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones that <laughs> time is not on our side, you know. It's not. I mean, if you're someone who is of a youthful age, and really, that could be someone in their 70s, because I don't think 70 is old at all. Um, but really, when I say youthful age, I'm not talking about people in their 70s, because I my whole thing is any anyone who gets to the age of 80 and above would be probably considered someone who is old. Uh, forgive that. I mean, it's probably unfair and ageist but I will say that 70 anything below 80 is young as far as I'm concerned 
But when I say time is not on your side, I mean someone, you know, time is on the side of people who are, say, 10 years old, 20 years old. But as we know and as we've seen throughout this world, not just with the pandemic, but with anything, life can be fleeting and life is fleeting. So what do we do with the time we have? What do we do? And what do we do specifically on a daily basis? What is your time like on a daily basis? What is that for you? How do you do that? How do you make use of 24 hours of your day? And I really think that that is a central question as to the kind of productivity and success or at least sense of achievement and accomplishment that you will have in 2021. So how do you use your time? One of the things I would say is that if you don't really think about questions like this, or if you don't really mark your time or use it in any particular structured way, is to ask yourself, what do I want to accomplish today? To the extent that you can ask that question, to the extent that you can accomplish something in a day, depending on your situation or your circumstances. For example, if there's some family situation going on, or you've got one of your kids who is in need of some help with something. And you know that from the beginning of the day, or you know that during the day, or you know from the previous day or two that there's this issue that needs to be resolved. Then you've obviously, you know that that's going to be something in your day that you're going to be dealing with. And maybe there's some pre-existing goal that you are trying to seek to achieve, or you're trying to achieve and you hope that you are able to satisfy that goal successfully during the course of the day. If you are someone who is trying to write something, and if you go to one writingmore.com, which is writing, W-R-I-T-I-N-G-M-O-O-R-E.com, which is my writing website, where I provide tips for writers, for people, who just are stuck with their writing or who want to write something but just are not able to for whatever reason. You might just be wanting to write something and it really starts with something very simple, writing that you can't write. Now, people who have severe issues of depression, clinical depression, of course, this will not be an exercise that may help them. Although there may be people who can fight through that, but clinical depression is something I know people who have clinical, who are clinically depressed. I know them and they talk about this, that it is an, it is extremely difficult to function. And the people who are not clinically depressed look at that and go, wow, really? You, you literally can't get out of bed? And the person who is diagnosed as clinically depressed, really severely depressed, says, no, I cannot get out of bed. That's what they would say to you. And I've seen this happen where people literally cannot get out of bed. It's no joke at all. There's nothing to joke about, of course. So for someone who finds themselves in that type of position, it's, of course, very difficult. 
for people who are not in that particular position and find themselves not being able to write, write that you can't write something. Write that you are trying to achieve something, but I don't know what it is. Write that down. Write down that I am struggling to think about what I'm going to do today. Write that down. Walk away from it and come back and look at what you've written and see if you can build on that after, say, a half hour away, an hour away. Maybe you don't come back at all to, to the written page, to the written word, and you decide maybe a day later to come back. Hopefully not more than two days or so. And then build on it. Maybe you write down what's bothering you. What is it that's bothering you? If you're able to articulate that on paper, then write it down. Write down what you'd like to do on this day. And take a step toward trying to accomplish that. I'm going to clear out my DVR. That seems very simple to do, doesn't it? But there's so many good programs that you've recorded. And then you sit there and you think, hmm, well, I've got to watch this one first before I delete it because, you know, I haven't watched that one. And then you end up playing the game on yourself that you really did not want to play. You end up not deleting anything. You end up not watching anything either. (laughs) It is called creating an excuse. It is called more precisely than that even. Procrastination. And it is that kind of thing that prohibits us from moving forward and accomplishing something. Clearing our head spaces to move forward to the next step, to the next episode, if you will. Not to... Not to quote Snoop Dogg, but although Snoop Dogg, there you go. At least Snoop Dogg voted for um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Unlike, uh, well, anyway, people like 50 Cent and Ice Cube and Lil Wayne and oh dear me. Um, but again, The goal, you have to ask yourself, what is your goal? And you have to ask yourself, how are you managing that with time? How are you using time to uh, effectuate the goal that you want to get to? And I hope that you're able to. It's not easy. I I sit here and I don't want to present this as if it's, well, you just, you know, walk along, dust yourself off and away we go. For some people, it is that easy. For other people, it's not. Because you've got to also look at, well, if I'm going to stratify my time, am I organized? What kinds of things am I doing? How am I managing time? Because if you are currently unemployed, if you are someone who is not working from home, if you're someone who's not working outside, you're not an essential worker. You are somebody who, unless you have children of a particular age, you probably have a lot of time on your hands. And in that sense, time is not so much that it's on your side or not on your side. It's that time is there to be used. 
it's such a precious commodity. How do we use time, I think, is the central inquiry as well. How does a person use time in any given day? And what do you do with it? Do you read? Do you watch C-SPAN? Do you get work done? Do you go on social media? How much time do you spend on social media, for example? If you spend more than two hours a day on social media, the chances are is that you are not being productive or as productive as you should or could be. Are you on social media and you just literally are there for an hour straight? Or are you doing other things and then constantly checking your phone or checking your tablet or checking a laptop if you are in the home? Is that what you do with social media or is it something different for you? Are you literally scrolling through and reading things and reading things and then reading more things and then re- and you've not left your perch, your position for literally half an hour, for an hour, for two hours, for more than that? I honestly think that one of the key components of how we deal with time is how much time we are spending on social media. And yes, I use social media, as you know, if you are a regular listener and if you're on Twitter and you can follow me at the popcorn R-E-E-L. But one of the things I think about time and social media in particular is the kinds of time you're spending on it. Because if you're spending more time on social media than you are on achieving a goal of yours for a particular day, then you have to revisit and re-evaluate what you're doing and the time you're spending doing it. If you can find a balance, you really should do that and must do that. Take time away from social media. Spend less time on social media. That is one of the very key ingredients here. Social media and technology have, in my view, become substitutes for people, for some people, getting things done, getting work done, spending time with people in their lives that they love. For some people, that doesn't apply to everybody. But I do think that the more time someone spends on social media, for example, the less they get done. It's just simple. Now, if you use social media as part of your job, That's a different story because I know of people who use social media because it's part of their job. They have to look at social media. They have to scour it. They have to see who's saying what. And reporters have to do this too. That's why they follow pretty much every journalist known to humankind. So that's part of their job. They have to see what's being said, evaluate that, you know, so there are a number of people in the world who must rely on social media and be on it constantly because it's part of their job. But if being on social media is not a prerequisite to your job, and if it is not the thing that you need, it's not the indispensable thing that you need to function in your job if you have one, then whether you have a job or not, you've got to really look at, and whether you have a job that's non-social media, I mean, you've got to look at how you're spending time how you're spending time on social media. And if you're spending more than two hours in a single day looking at social media and you have goals that you need to achieve on a daily basis 
and you're not achieving them, then it's clear. And my suggestion would be to spend less time on social media. I really would think so. I honestly think that if you spend more than two hours in any given day on social media, you're spending too much time on social media. Now, that's look, that's not medical. That's just my opinion. And, you know, opinions are, you know, you know, opinion culture is a really, you know, that's another thing. And I, I pledged I would speak about that this week in the episode I did on social media, but never did. I just, you know, I realized that, that we've become a society completely run by opinion and facts are completely the secondary thing now. And that's been happening for years, but it's really come across in the, over the last four. And the corporate news media and social media particularly have contributed heavily to that. Where people just say anything. And only until recently did Twitter and Facebook respond to that. And that's what I wanted to say the other day when I did the episode on social media. And about how social media and you don't control the platform. Um, there's no safe space for you if you don't control the social media platform. If you don't own it. There's no space safe space safe space for you on Twitter or on Facebook if you don't own and control Twitter or Facebook. Simple as that. And I wanted to talk about this part about free speech, uh, or excuse me, about, about, um, the, about opinion versus fact. And I never got to it in the episode, so I'm sorry. So, but that's the thing. You know, that's the thing that um, is key, how opinion has completely dominated everything. Punditry is part of that. It's a complete system of punditry. I talk about systems a lot, but this is not idle talk. This is There are people behind these systems. It's not just this thing called the system. It's There are people behind it who are making money off of it, who are part of it. And that's become the same thing in punditry. That's what that's become. And it's completely dominated the American culture and other countries' cultures as well, but particularly here in the U.S., So all of that is to say that social media also affects time because if you're spending more than two hours a day on social media, it's too, it's a lot, it's a lot of time. That's a lot of time. And I'm talking about two hours collectively, whether it, I'm not even talking just two hours straight, two hours straight. That's, and there are people who do that. I'm not criticizing them. I'm simply saying that that is not good for you. I guess I am criticizing them. But that's not good. That's not healthy for you. And two hours across a whole day, I can understand that. But anything more than two hours on social media, whether you're doing it all at once or whether you're doing it throughout a day, is too much time. And you're probably not getting things done that you want to accomplish. Maybe you are. If you are, then great. But if you're not, then you have to really look at that. Time is really everything. It's not that it's on our side or not on our side, which it's, it probably is, as I said earlier, it's really not on our side. But it's about time being everything, almost everything, right? Time literally is money. And time is, is love too. I mean, the time you can spend with the person you love and care about or the people that you love and care about. Your spouse, you know, your children, your partner, significant other, boyfriend, girlfriend, 
You know, all these things, all of these things are marked and measured by time. So think about that as we head into the weekend here. How do you calibrate your time? What are you achieving on a daily basis? You want to get through a book? You want to finish reading a book? Well, I'll get through chapter this, chapter that today. Well, you know, or tomorrow, whenever. Then mark that. I'm going to get through chapter whatever it might be. That's how the sausage gets made, if you will. And I think that that is um, the marker for us. Time is so important. So it's just critical that we use it and use it in a way that helps us look at the end of the day and say, hey, I got something done today. Welcome back. So we are at the weekend here. My goodness me, we've got here so quickly. These days do march by. You know, I just talked about time. And I think it's really time for you right now to head to the Politocrat Daily Podcast online store. There's so much merchandise and more is being added almost daily. Almost daily. You have to go to the following website address, the-politocrat.myshopify.com. Go right there. Go right now to the-politocrat.myshopify.com. By the way, I hope that you did get to listen to the podcast episode I did yesterday and the conversation about the documentary film Anita Speaking Truth to Power, directed by Frida Lee Mock from 2013. And I hope that you found that conversation to be of insight, of benefit. I really do. And if you've got some issues or questions or comments or feedback, please do drop a line to yours truly, uh, electronically, if you will, at the address that I'm about to give you on email, politocratpod, that's politocrat, P-O-D, at gmail.com. I do get feedback and I would like to hear from you. Um, about any of the episodes, any of the guests, anything um, that you thought. Hopefully it's positive. If it's not, then, you know, it's not. I hope that, again, you will be um, judiciously kind in terms of the manner. Now, you can disagree and you can take objection and, you know, that happens. But there need not be any resort to any nastiness in terms of the kinds of vitriol that you hear from people. The episode yesterday was very important. I like to think that all of these episodes have some importance, but I do think that yesterday um, was an important episode. The conversation was very important, and I hope that you felt the same way. I wanted to just say a couple of things about it that I didn't even say at the end of yesterday's episode. 
And it is amazing as someone who is a moderator and has moderated and done Q&As with celebrities and with filmmakers, with actors on a note. I mean, I've done a load of these and it's always amazing what you get from the audience and you should never, ever underestimate your audience. And if any moderator does that, they are not paying attention. They're doing a grave disservice, not only to themselves, but to the audience, obviously. Uh, and, and to the guests, too. Because the guest deserves that kind of respect. I've seen moderators who completely turn their back on the audience and by extension are disrespecting the guest by only engaging with the guest and not with the audience that the guest is sitting before. And so that becomes a real problem. And the audience senses that as, do the, as does the guest. And there have been many situations I've observed where I've seen that. And it makes for a very chilly atmosphere. And it makes for a very tense atmosphere because the guest senses and catches on to what's going on. And it really doesn't take much to catch on to that. And then that guest makes life difficult for the moderator. Now, I've seen these situations. I've not been in situations like this experience-wise, thankfully, because I avoid those pitfalls. Aren't I so special? <laughs> but I've seen it. And I've seen people make the same mistakes over and over and over. And they still get hired to be moderators. And I give advice to people for free. Um, I'm going to start charging. I don't give out all the trade secrets, but I do give advice on Twitter about this, about moderators and what they're doing and the things they do correctly and the things that you don't do if you're a moderator or you should stop doing. So there's that. Involve yourself with your audience. That's the piece of advice I'll give you here. If you are a moderator or Q&A person, Involve yourself with the audience. Make sure that the audience is not talking about you. They're talking about your guest. And maybe if they say, well, yeah, he did a good job or she did a good job or they did a good job, then fine. Okay, great. But the audience should never be talking about you. If they are saying to you, well, good job. For example, I'll use myself in this instance. Well done, Omar. I really appreciated the, the con. Fine. That's that's really the only thing they should be saying. But if they're saying, oh, that moderator was so stuck up and pretentious and she was this and he was that and they were just horrible. That's not the kind of thing they should be saying about you. What they should be saying is, oh, that conversation was really good. Um, the guest was great. I really loved what she had to say. I loved what they had to say. That's what the topic should be. That's how that conversation should be remembered. It shouldn't be about, oh God, that moderator was so awful. If the moderator is the topic of the conversation, you have failed at your job as a moderator. <laughs> Believe me, the, the moderator's job is like a referee's job in any sport, which is to be seen but not noticed. You know? When you have a Premier League match in English football, the Premier League, for those of you who are sports oriented, for those of you who watch the Premier League more specifically in England. And you see two teams, I'm going to pluck them out of thin air, Liverpool and Manchester United, for example. 
or Liverpool and Manchester City. And you have a referee refereeing that game. The referee should not be the talking point of the game. No matter which game it is, the referee should never be the focal point. If the referee is the focal point of a match after the game, that referee has profoundly failed. And we've seen this so many times, referees, because they make decisions that are very so-called controversial. They give out red cards when they shouldn't. They give out yellow cards when they should have given out red cards. You get the idea. And then that becomes a big talking point. It eclipses the match itself. And you don't want that as a referee. It means you've probably done something wrong. Or it means that for the next two days you're going to be talked about. And that's not good. What you want the fan or the viewer to be talking about is the the match. Or that the match might not have been great. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things, right? And so the point is with a moderator, you do not want to be the center of attention. If you moderate a conversation with someone and you're the center of the attention, that's trouble. That is trouble because I'm telling you, they did not come to see the moderator. The person out there who paid their money to see you or to see the guest, did not come to see you. Now, maybe you're a famous moderator. You're somebody who is Oprah Winfrey. They probably did come to see you then. (laughs) Oprah Winfrey interviews the, you know, the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. Well, yeah, they probably did come to see both of you. They came to see Vice President Harris, for sure. And they came to see Oprah Winfrey. But in situations... That And even those situations still, you know, they want to hear what Vice President Harris has to say. If they're coming to it, and of course, it's, this is COVID era now, so it wouldn't happen the same way. But they come to an online thing, whether it's Zoom or whatever, they want to, they want to hear from the subject. Oprah's there, and yes, she's terrific, and she's excellent, and we know about Oprah, you know, we know the long resume and everything else of the brilliance that she is and the person that she is. But let's say Oprah made a mistake or makes a few mistakes in her mind. The talk is going to be about that, no matter if Oprah's famous or not. And it's going to take away from Vice President Harris. But even so, people do not come to see moderators. They come to see the guests. And you must make sure that you know the difference between moderator and guest and you know that if you are a moderator you are not the guest and it is not about you and if you make things all about you during a Q&A during a moderate moderating event when you're moderating and hosting it if you make it about you you're toast the audience will give you a hard time rightly so the guests will give you a hard time rightly so or you will just get a cold shoulder and maybe a few dirty looks (laughs) Not that this happened to me, because I'm fortunate enough to not happen to me. But I've seen it happen to people. And it's not good. So, that's my thing on moderators. And by the way, what's interesting about audiences is that audiences, you'll always have a couple of people in an audience who change a subject. No matter what it is. And I found this with the 
discussion I did last week that you heard in yesterday's podcast episode. Please go back to that. It's episode number 49. <laughs> to remember that. Oh, dear. Episode 49 of season two is where you can find um, the podcast episode that I did with the discussion in it from last week. A week ago today, actually. And the episode was yesterday, February the 18th, a Thursday, 2021. And you can find that episode as well, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And also the pop, the politocrat.com. <laughs> I almost said the popcorn reel. Um, the politocrat.com as well. So there you go with that. And one of the things is, what I always find with, with discussions like this is that people will break the rules, right? Sometimes you'll get, get uh, not guests, you will get people in an audience, in a Zoom audience, who, if the, uh, if the job is you've got to see the film before you discuss it, you will find at least three people, if not more than three people out of, say, 50 or 30 or 75 who have not seen the film. And yet they will be the ones who will talk. <laughs> they will be the ones who will speak up loudly because maybe there's an issue they wanted to get off their chest or something that's not really related. And those are the people who <laughs> will always find the voice. <laughs> they will always find the voice. And some of the people who have seen the film but don't want to speak about it because they've heard something that the moderators said, in this case, yours truly, or something else, they just want to just sit back and observe and, and, you know, maybe learn, maybe not learn, maybe, oh, I don't want to say something that might offend, so I'm going to keep quiet kind of thing. I don't know. Or they're just trying to take it all in. I don't know. There's many reasons why someone speaks up or doesn't. But some of the people who do speak up are, are the ones who have not seen the film, not all cases. I mean, in this case, the, in this particular conversation... There were one or two people who admitted to to be, a, you know, and I think there's some credit for that, to be honest enough to say, hey, look, I didn't watch the film, which I think is honest. You know, it's also something that <laughs> it's not really good, right? You should be watching the film so that you can follow the discussion that is being had about a film, in this case, the documentary, Anita Speaking Truth to Power by Frida Lee Mock, 2013 documentary. Please find that. It's on Tubi, T-U-B-I. T-U-B-I. Tom underscore Bravo Indigo. And you can download the app and find that movie and watch it for free. It's a documentary. It's literally an hour and 17 minutes. That's 77 minutes. It goes by pretty quickly, although it feels like it's longer. But it's, it's, a, it's a really quick, you can watch it in your lunch hour, your lunchtime. But that's something that happens. You know, you have audience, some audience members who will do that, who will not watch the, which is, you know, it's annoying. <laughs> but it happens. There's really not much you can do about it. And people will say something that's not related. And you have to navigate that as a moderator. You've got to know how to deal with that. And there are people who will, as you may have heard in this, um, who will reveal things. And... It's, it's, it's really profound. So audiences, you've got to respect your audience, even though the audience, sometimes some audience members may not respect you. <laughs> it's not a two-way street. <laughs> Unfortunately, moderating events and being a Q&A facilitator and a host is not a two-way street because you may have an unruly public in front of you 
you know, you may have an unruly public in front of you and you just have to deal with that, right? And if you've got someone that speaks about an issue that's completely out of left field, you have to have a response to that. Even if the person's disrespecting the whole event, you've got to have a way of dealing with that one way or another. But I think by and large, I think everybody um, who was at that discussion last week that you heard yesterday was, I think, generally speaking, um, very honest. I thought they were being very honest. The people who answered and spoke, um, I think, respectful, uh, largely, I thought. And I think that people were being genuine about where they were coming from. And and it's always, you know, it's when you're challenged, that's good too. I mean, you're challenging people, so you should expect people to challenge you. And I know that if I'm doing a Q&A, you know, hosting thing, particularly in front of a majority white audience, overwhelmingly as this one was, uh, I can expect to be challenged. I mean, as a black man, I can expect that in a society like this. And that's not to say, look, I mean, with or without the racism, I I would would hope that someone would actually challenge and say and question what I'm saying or or raise a question to me. I, I don't mind that. But when it's matters of race specifically or racism, I should say. You know, sometimes as a black person, when you're doing these things and you're doing them in front of a majority white audience, you can sense from some of the people who may ask you questions what they're trying to drive at. You may sense that. And it's not true necessarily of every single white person, but it's certainly true of some of the people that you may hear questions from or field questions from. So... There you have it. I mean, I could go on for a long time about the psychology of that too, by the way. <laughs> I think that might be a whole new episode. But I do want to say, once again, I found it to be a thrilling, riveting conversation. And as you heard, um, the perfect, and I think it's Laura, as you heard Laura uh, say at the end of the conversation, or, well, I mean, I don't want to give it away because um, you may not have listened to it. <laughs> You've just got to listen to that episode. Um, and you really have to listen to that episode. I also did a conversation uh, with the same group um, and it was much, even much larger group back in last summer for the documentary film I Am Not Your Negro, which is a staggering piece of work. You've got to watch that documentary this weekend. Watch it this weekend. Also watch Anita Speaking Truth to Power this weekend. Those are two documentaries, one of which is about two hours long. Oh, actually, excuse me. One of, They're both short documentaries. One of them, I Am Not Your Negro, is 92 minutes long. It's really short, around 93 around there. It's an hour and a half. It is. It goes by quickly. That one goes by really quickly. It goes by quicker than the one that actually is only 77 minutes long, which is the Anita Speaking Truth to Power documentary by Frida Lee Mock. Raoul Peck directed, I Am Not Your Negro. 
Make those two of your documentaries to watch this weekend. And also, let me point you in the direction of some other films that I strongly recommend that you watch. Judas and the Black Messiah is a must-watch. That is on streaming platforms like HBO Max, I think, that and, and HBO. You've got to watch that. Malcolm and Marie. Malcolm and Marie. That's on Netflix right now. Please watch that. Also, the United States against Billie Holiday. The United States versus Billie Holiday. That's directed by Lee Daniels. Please go and watch that film. I think it's available on some kind of platform. Um, I'm sure you can find it. And I know I've probably left out a couple of others, but, but those are the ones. And also One Night in Miami, directed by Regina King, which is getting a lot of attention. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. There's a number of them, right, on Netflix. Uh, One Night in Miami, I believe, is, at, is Prime, um, on Prime. But there's so many of these documentaries, You right? You could absolutely, uh, excuse me, in films, feature films. Uh, as well uh, that I've just mentioned. Those are all feature films, the, except for the ones I made clear with documentaries. The rest of those are all feature films. You've got to watch these films. And I wish TCM would be putting on films like these. Now, obviously, these are brand new, but there are great films from the past that TCM, Turner Classic Movies, should be putting on its air. And, you know, I think Sugar Cane Alley is one of them. You know, Uzan Palsy, Daughters of the Dust, which I think they have shown before on TCM. They need to show that instead of Superfly. I've had enough of Superfly. I mean, come on. Superfly, I think, was 1972 or 73 or 74, somewhere around there. Enough, 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 enough. The so-called black exploitation era films. This, I mean, yes, we know it. it is important to know that those films existed, but those films to me are films that are the functional equivalent of a minstrel show and enough is enough you know i get it you can't erase it from history from film history either but tcm can do better than that (laughs) tcm can show black films or films about black people or films directed by black people that are positive life-affirming films or films where black people are in their complexity. I talked about this in an episode this week that, you know, Queen Sugar and and black representation. I'm not saying that every black person has to be portrayed perfectly on the big screen or on the small screen. I'm saying they just should not be portrayed as stereotypical buffoons and, and as, you know, watermelon eaters, for example. You know what I mean? It can't be like the 1950s and 1960s and 1940s and 1930s. Yes, sir, boss. It can't be step and fetch it. No disrespect to him because he did that because he had no other choices. And he was a really smart person off screen. And then he was forced by white Hollywood to dumb himself down for white amusement and comfort. Which is what all of that was about. It was about a system and a system that said that we're going to subjugate you black people. And if you want to be in the business of Hollywood entertainment, if you want to be part of that, not on the business end, but on the exploitation end, this is the role you must serve to make us white folk feel better about ourselves. And this is the only avenue you've got to make a dime. So here you are, step and fetch it. This is what you have to do. 
And that's the role they played. Bert Williams, before him in the 1800s, late 1800s. I mean, I can go through the whole list. I didn't even mention a, a number of people that I should have mentioned in the episode that I did on Queen Sugar and Black Representation in Film and TV over the ages, through the ages, which is an episode you can listen to right now. But there you have it. That is what I think TCM should be doing. It should be doing, and it does do some good history stuff on blackface and on that history and also on other histories. Cicely Tyson, I thought was, I think they did really well with that. I think they should have had Cicely Tyson, more more Cicely Tyson movies. But some of the stuff they've been showing this week, Superfly, really? That is not some movie that um, represents black life at all. At all. Now you can take issue with me, but that does not represent black life. In Curtis... Mayfield's brilliant soundtrack notwithstanding. You know, we need to have life affirmation and it doesn't have to be Sidney Poitier in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Oh, he's a doctor. Oh, he's this. Oh, he's that. Oh, he's so perfect. And that's why I love him. <laughs> no, we need to see black people in all of their flaws and glories and triumphs and setbacks. Real multidimensional people which is what the story about black excellence goes back to that I mentioned a few days ago. That we don't want to be excellent. You know, maybe we don't want to be, I mean, we all strive for excellence. Of course we do. As people, as black people, of course we do. But the way it's talked about in American society, for example, maybe we just want to be, as, this, as the writer, I forget, I think her name is uh, Badia Ahad. Maybe we just want to be ordinary, you know, mediocre. Right? And not have to be pointed out to be these marvelous superhero, superhuman beings. And why can't we just be us? You know, I think that's the thrust of the article. And the point that gets made about there's a certain oppressiveness about that term black excellence. And I kind of caught myself thinking about my own use of that term. Which is why I would love to have a conversation with Badia Ahad, the... Uh, PhD. We'll see if that if that takes place. I would really love for the doctor to be on to talk about this. But anyway, I do want to say that that is where that stands. Where all of it stands. Of course, I'll be back again tomorrow. But I want you to do some homework and get started on watching one of those titles that I mentioned. Whether it's I Am Not Your Negro, whether it is a need to truth, speaking truth to power, whether it is Malcolm and Marie, whether it is One Night in Miami, whether it is Judas and the Black Messiah, whether it is any of those titles and more, please make sure you watch one of them and also make sure that you are able to accomplish something that you want to do in your life, whatever it is, no matter how big or small, on a daily basis. Thank you for listening to this edition. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. <laughs>